nasıl? So let's have one integrated meditation where we'll kind of run through the essential points of this sequence of meditations that Padmasambhava taught that I cited, starting with really the shamatha, focusing right in on the nature of awareness, to ascertain that stillness that's already there. It's not a cultivated stillness. It's not a cultivation of stability gradually overcoming coarse, medium, and subtle excitation. It's looking through the veils of obscurations from ill will, sensual craving, excitation, and so forth and so on, the five obscurations, looking through that to a stillness that is a quality, of course, of the substrate consciousness, because it by nature is non-conceptual, which means still. So, just probing with such a subtlety, such a quietness, that one penetrates to that stillness, which Padmasambhava says, that's not the nature of awareness, that's not rikpa, but that is stillness. That is, that stillness is shamatha. One can say substrate consciousness is natural shamatha. And then moving beyond that, to really probe into the nature of the mind that has stillness as one of its attributes on occasion. And on other occasion, has the attribute of being agitated. And has many other attributes. This mind in which thoughts come and go and so on. What is the nature of that mind that has these qualities? What is the nature of the mind that is still and then moves? And then, going into something that is often called gomme, or non-meditation. So there's a book, at least a few of you know of, called Buddhahood Without Meditation. People leap to that book. Oh, I've been waiting. How to achieve Buddhahood without having to do anything at all. Well, in fact, that's exactly what he means. Buddhahood, Magom Sangye, it's called Magom Sangye. And that is awakening, Buddhahood, enlightenment, without meditation. But what he's referring to is after after you've developed, after you've cultivated very pure renunciation, very pure bodhicitta, excellent shamatha, deep insight into vipassana, now you're ready to do nothing at all. And that is magum, without meditating on anything. Even as I said, this this notion of open presence, I like the, I like the phrase a lot. It's just that I think it can easily be misleading. We have it now, in your, in your, I think many of you copied those three pages of instructions from Padmasambhava. That it's just resting there in the present moment without taking anything as an object. One could read, one could interpret open presence as taking everything as an object. And then if one, one thinks, oh, this and Vipassana, they're all kind of the same, and so let's take Mahasi Sayadaw's teachings of labeling and put that to Dzogchen, because after all, it's all one, then you'll spit sitting there and say, birdies tripping, pain in my knee, there's a thought, oh, look, ah, e, ah, ah, ooh, ooh, ee, ah, and it's not vipassana, and it's not shamatha, it's not zokshan, it's mahamudra, it's not mahamudra, it's just a a e e u u a. It's really nothing much at all, except for just kind of sitting there and labeling stuff. So, 
that may be helpful, that labeling may be helpful to help calm this flow of rumination, to chop it up a bit, to break it up, to bring you back to the present. That could be useful. It's a pre-shamata method. Pre-shamata, that could be very useful. So, in this little sequence in three pages, identifying the innate stillness of awareness itself, which is one of the prime qualities of substrate consciousness, ascertaining the emptiness of inherent nature, of even consciousness itself, substrate consciousness. And with that, breaking through the reification of even subtle mind, then resting in non-meditation, doing nothing at all, not affirming anything that comes up, gakdu mepa, gakdu mepa, absolutely core instructions in Dzogchen, gakdu mepa, not rejecting anything, like mental afflictions, or, oh, I don't want to hear anything, or don't want thoughts, don't, not rejecting anything, gakdu mepa, and not affirming anything, without affirmation, without negation or refutation, without doing anything, just pure being. And if one is sufficiently pre- uh, prepared, the vessel is well prepared, with that shamadeh vipassana prelude, then something will break through you. It's not you breaking through to it. It's not like getting your jackhammer, your jackhammer of Dzogchen out. To, to break through the substrate consciousness, to penetrate down through to Rikpa. But rather the breakthrough is from the bottom up. It's all metaphorical, it's all misleading, but it is allowing Rikpa to emerge and know itself. But for that to take place, you want to stop doing everything. Okay? But not too soon. All in good time. Olaso, find a comfortable position. As you let your awareness descend into the field of the body, right down to the ground, settle your body with the qualities of ease, stillness, and vigilance. Relinquishing all control over your respiration. Let it flow without impediment, without restraint, 
without force or effort. Relaxing deeply with every outbreath all the way through the end of the outbreath. And for a little while, settle your mind in its natural state, letting your awareness remain within the confines of the field of tactile sensations. Setting your mind at ease and stillness in this present moment, clearly illuminating the sensations of the breath wherever they most distinctly manifest throughout the body.
and let your eyes be at least partially open. And rest your awareness in the space in front of you. But without taking anything as an object, without meditating on anything, just being present, being mindful in the present moment, without distraction, without grasping. Then turn your full interest, all of your awareness, to that phenomenon of consciousness itself. Consciousness in the present moment. Rest in that awareness of awareness itself. Taking no interest in any appearance to the mind, any object of the mind just in the immediate experience of being aware and knowing that. You may very well say that you are observing consciousness itself with your own mind, your mind turning in upon itself.
The mind has a characteristic of being conscious. Thoughts occur in the mind. The mind becomes dull, the mind becomes peaceful, it becomes agitated, it becomes clear. What is the nature of this mind that has these attributes and does these things? Does it have location? If so, where? Does it have spatial dimension? Is it large or small? Does it have a shape? We say thoughts occur in the mind. How big a place is this? What is the very nature of the mind that performs all the activities of the mind, of thinking, remembering, imagining, experiencing all manner of emotions and desires? There's something in here that is the mind that has those attributes. If so, identify it.
And if you conclude you cannot find it, then examine closely what is the nature of that which cannot find the mind. What is the very nature of this consciousness, this awareness you are experiencing right now, that has the attributes of luminosity, this awareness that manifests all appearances, this awareness that knows all that is to be known? What is the very nature of this consciousness that has these attributes? Examine closely. Then release all questions. Return to the immediacy of the present moment. Resting your awareness in that present without distraction without grasping, with unwavering mindfulness. And without taking anything as an object, without affirming or embracing, rejecting or avoiding, anything. Just be present.
Abrazo. <coughs> so, several days ago, I gave out some misinformation, so I want to correct myself. Misinformation that I think will not impair your practice of shamatha, vipassana, or dzogchen. But nevertheless, when I say something that's clearly not true, I like to, I love to be, how do you say, stand corrected. And that was when I made the comment, which I had heard years ago when I was receiving my training in physics, but that was like 25 years ago, that elementary particles such as electrons are simply geometrical points, but they have no spatial dimension at all. Turns out that's false. I misspoke. Uh, it is said on occasion, and that's what I heard, I wasn't making that up, that they're ge geometrical points, but they do not actually mean that it has no spatial dimension whatsoever. And in fact, scientists do know what the diameter of an electron is. With a pretty high degree of precision, it's about 10 to the minus 13th centimeters. So it's quite small. I think it's 2.7, but order of magnitude, 10 to the minus 13th centimeters. Or in, to really speak in scientific terms, it's teeny-winny. Really tiny. And moreover, they've discovered there's a team of English scientists who have now discovered, have been after 10 years of research, very meticulous, sophisticated research, have found out the shape of the electron. And it turns out to be, to an extraordinary degree of accuracy, spherical. It looks like it's about as perfectly spherical as measurements can detect. So it's a little tiny round ball. And so this is the image one gets from elementary particle physics is a teeny-weeny little tiny sphere that has mass, that has charge, that has spin, that has momentum, and so forth. And these are the fundamental building blocks of the entire physical universe. So it sounds like we're back to good old-fashioned classical physics, that a world out there made of little tiny balls of stuff that bounce into each other, like little billiard balls. Classic view that was so absolutely dominating physics in this 18th century, much of the 19th century. And that's still a lot of the reading that one finds mm, from elementary part of, physics, part of physics still gives that impression that everything really boils down to little tiny particles of matter, energy, in space, which is straight Democritus. It goes back to centuries before the time of Christ, before the Common Era, Reality consists of particles of matter in space. And if one assumes that, that that's really what's out there, what's really, really out there is space, time, and then these little, little globules of energy, energy as in photons, matter as in electrons, and they interact, and that's what's real. Then really, for all practical purposes, one is taking that as ultimate reality. That's what's real. That's what's really out there. And then all of subjective experience, our emotions, our memories, our dreams, hopes, fears, states of consciousness, all of that is subjective truth. So we're back to something very familiar. There's objective reality, which is ultimately real, ultimate reality. And then there are these effulgencies, these properties of matter that are our subjective experiences, and they're relative. They're really relative. It's relative to Tanya, relative to Roger, relative to Annie. Okay, that's your impression. That's your impression. That's your impression. But what's really there? Quanta of energy and matter moving in space. And that's not somebody's impression 
ultimately there. So people who are still embracing that view, which goes back to Democritus, and really it forms the core assertions of classical physics, and then not satisfied with the notion that is completely speculative, that somehow consciousness emerges from matter when it's sufficiently complex, like very complex configurations of 100 billion neurons, then somehow consciousness emerges from that with no evidence whatsoever. Some people say, oh, or, or simply wanting to equate consciousness with these complex configurations of neurons. Say, well, you know, there isn't actually any evidence for that at all, so do we really have to believe it when there's no evidence? And so some have opted, some people I know, some very bright people I know, have gone, said, well, all right. What's ultimately out there are little particles of matter, like these little tiny perfect spheres of electrons. And maybe everything is conscious. Electrons are conscious in a really, really primitive way. And then an atom made up of a nucleus and one or more electrons, a bit more conscious, a bit more complex. And then more complex configurations of atoms. And they have somewhat more sophisticated, higher level of consciousness. And then we just keep on going the great chain of being until we get to cells. And each cell is a little living organism, conscious organism. And then very complex society of cells, the whole network of 100 billion neurons and another order of magnitude of consciousness rises. And lo and behold, we call that human consciousness. But it's all basically assemblies of the little micro-consciousnesses of each elementary particle of electrons, protons, neutrons, and so on. And so some people I know, some very bright people I know, I think I won't mention names, but one psychologist I know personally, very bright, he embraces this view, called panpsychism. One, one of the brightest neuroscientists around, very famous, he's embraced this because he just says, you know, if you look at the qualities of, ne of neurons and the qualities of subjective experience are so totally different. Why would anybody believe they're the same when all the evidence suggests the opposite? So that's a nice commonsensical response. But he, as a person who's trained in biology, engineering, and so forth, has to, to put the cloak, put the cloak of consciousness on something. Who will take consciousness? You know, we, got con we, have, to, we have to put it somewhere. So what should we put this cloak of consciousness on? Well, we'll put it on that which is ultimately real, fundamentally real, elementary particles. Now, is there any evidence for that? Not at all. <laughs> no evidence for that at all. And then little problems like if you get a whole bunch of electrons and protons and so forth, then how is it that unified sense of consciousness arises from a whole assembly, like the trillions of electrons and protons and so forth in one's brain, let alone the 100 billion neurons, how do each of them having their own individual consciousness, how does that all congeal? It's called the, the binding problem. How does that all congeal such that when I look over it to Anne, I do, I'm not looking from 100 billion perspectives, let alone the trillions of, expect, uh, trillions of perspectives of my, all of my electrons and protons and neutrons inside my head suddenly getting interested in Anne. There's no explanation for that at all. So there's a view of panpsychism for which there's no empirical evidence and no explanation, frankly, of how this all gets together to form a unified consciousness. Oh, there's Bang, and I have a sense I'm looking from one perspective. So I think it's an interesting view without any empirical evidence, and frankly, it just doesn't make any sense to me at all. So I've now apologized for misleading people that electrons have no spatial dimension. They do, 10 to the minus 13th centimeters, give or take, you know, a schmidgen.
So, I'd like to move on now to a question that was posed, slipped under my door. But before answering a question, before answering it was actually a little series of questions, which I think I will be able to get to today. Um, I'd like to, when I read the series of questions, then they popped into my mind, even though I haven't quite found where that is or how big it is and all of that. But there popped into my mind a number of correlated questions that weren't asked. So before responding to the questions that were asked, I thought, why not respond to questions that weren't asked? So here's the questions that weren't asked, and you'll see how these may relate to the questions that were asked, and perhaps the two balancing out will make it interesting. Okay? So here's a question that wasn't asked. When did the different interpretations of scientific discoveries first occur? So scientists have been making discoveries for a number of centuries now. But when did they start getting into multiple interpretations, discussions, debates, and so forth? When did that happen? Different schools of interpretation. When did that happen? Well, if we, when speaking of science, if we speak of modern science, then many people would trace that back to, to Copernicus. Copernicus. Right. And so Copernicus was a churchman, of course. He was a theologian. He was also a very fine mathematician. And he took the, he, how do you say, drew together or took fully into account the, the data that had been accumulated over centuries of the precise movements of the planets, the sun, the moon, stars, uh, across the sky and the relative, and the relative positions in the night sky so this was known for centuries, and it was formulated in a coherent system called Ptolemaic astronomy. He took that same body of data, because he didn't make any fresh discoveries himself in that regard. He did not have a telescope, make any fresh empirical discoveries, but being the brilliant mathematician that he was, he took the same data, the same appearances, and then formulated differently. Instead of having the Earth in the center and the sun going around that, the moon going around that, the planets and stars all going around that, and the planets, because of their weird movements relative to the stars, and then having to account for them with epicycles and eccentrics, which gets very complicated, he felt he'd simplified things by putting the sun in the center and all of the planets moving around that, right? So the geocentric system. When he came out with this mathematical theory in the 16th century, immediately there were multiple interpretations. Number one, he didn't pub publish until after he was dead because he was afraid to be, of being burned to death by his own church. And nobody liked that. Oh, but as soon as it came out, it, it would lend itself to different interpretations. You'd say, well, wait a minute. It's geocentric. It's geocentric. How, how many interpretations? What part of geo do you not understand? What part of geocentric do you not understand? I mean, send, send the, well, no, there were multiple interpretations by very intelligent people. And some would, some would say... Some did say, this is actually how things are. We've been wrong for centuries. Ptolemy was wrong. Aquinas was wrong. The church fathers were wrong. The literal interpretation of the Bible, that the sun is actually moving, rising and setting, while the earth is stationary, is wrong. It's all wrong. And Copernicus got it right, that the, earth is, the sun is stationary, and the, and the earth is simply one of the many planets going around it. And that's right, and everybody else was wrong. That's one interpretation. But it wasn't the only interpretation. Many of the 
the churchmen, the great churchmen of Copernicus's time and right through the time of Galileo and thereafter, said, no, that's not, that's a false interpretation. You're taking this much too literally. And that is, this is simply a way of accounting for appearances. It's a very elegant mathematical theory. But this is the way things actually are, ultimately are? No, there's no reason to believe that. Because to Ptolemy's system, that also accounts for appearances. Copernicus's system accounts for appearances, and they do so more or less equally well. So there are simply different ways of saving appearances. Those are two very, very different interpretations of what, Gal- what Copernicus had come up with. Totally different. The empirical evidence was there, no disagreement. The two theories there, everybody, you know, people understood them, not that difficult to understand. The way they understood them, the way they interpreted them, fundamentally different. And that was from the first time it came out. So in other words, it was from the beginning, as soon as scientists started making, scientists in the modern sense of the term, started making statements, this is the nature of reality, in that next breath, people were interpreting it in different ways, fundamentally different ways. And that went on for decades until in 1609 or so, 1609, 1610, right around there, 1611 perhaps, now we have Galileo with his telescope. In 1609, he published The Starry Messenger, which gave his first reports of what he'd seen. I think it was a little bit later. I could be wrong here, so it's a minor mistake if I'm making one. But right around that time, he, with his telescope, discovered that Venus has phases. Venus has phases, like the moon has phases. Well, if one understands this clearly within the context of astronomy and what is is not possible, that discovery that Venus has phases then repudiates irrevocably and beyond any reasonable debate the Ptolemaic system. It's not possible. If you really believe the Ptolemaic system, Venus cannot have phases. Venus does have phases. Anybody who looks through the telescope for a sustained period at Venus can see it has phases. Therefore, Oh, what virtually all European intellectuals, astronomers, astrologers had believed from the second century up to the 17th century was wrong. Was wrong. But that was clear. So we say, okay, now we've got, now we have empirical evidence, now the debate's over. Wrong again. As soon as he made that discovery, there was another interpretation. And that is the great Danish astronomer, the aristocrat, Tycho Brahe. Tycho Brahe, did I pronounce it correctly? Tycho Brahe, no, not bad. A person doesn't speak any Danish at all. Tycho Brahe had this, he had no telescope, but he had extremely sophisticated, extremely precise ways of measuring the relative movements of the stars and planets. And he, being the very careful observer that he was, but also a very brilliant mathematician, he came up with his own theory, Tycho Brahe's theory. And this was before Galileo, before Kepler, and after Copernicus. And that is that the sun and the moon go around the earth and all the other planets go around the sun. It's a bit complicated. But yeah, earth here, sun and moon going around us and all the planets going around the sun. So it's a quasi-geocentric, heliocentric system, kind of something of a mix. Kind of a nice middle way, if you ask me. And in fact... Galileo's discoveries, all of his discoveries, including his discovery, empirical discovery, of the phases of Venus are compatible with Tycho Brahe's theory. And so now, how do you interpret Galileo's findings? Well, you can go the Copernicus way, which, of course, Galileo embraced, or you could go the Tycho Brahe way. 
As soon as he made the discovery, there were multiple interpretations. It was the next breath. And the Roman Catholic Church kind of liked the Tico Brahe better. Because that still puts the earth in the center with the sun and moon going around it and then the planets are whatever. They don't count. They're just going around. The, okay, have a nice day going around the sun. But after all, God made this universe for us on earth. And of course we should be in the center, not that big burning ball of a sun. I mean, it's got no people on it. Why would that be in the center? That's not fair. So the church sided with that one for quite a long time. They liked that one a lot. And they stuck by their guns. So as soon as there was an empirical observation and a conclusion, there was multiple interpretations. And in fact, it wasn't until the early 19th century, much, much later, that there was unequivocal evidence that Tycho Brahe's model was wrong. Now, one might think, okay, well, that's one minor point, but to get the great surge of, of astronomy and science was forging ahead through the 17th century with Galileo, with Kepler, and then eventually this sonic boom of, of Isaac Newton. I mean, it was so massive what he came, he came up with, with his three basic laws, his theories of gravity and so forth. I mean, many people, I think many people regard him as the greatest scientist who ever, ever lived. I mean, fantastic. And he was an experimenter and he was a theoretician. He invented calculus. He was a brilliant mathematician. He was this whole shebang. But interestingly enough, well into the, through the 17th century, Isaac Newton came out with his great Principia in 1687, I believe, well into the 17th century in the great universities of Europe. So, Copernicus was in the, in the 16th century. Galileo did his groundbreaking work in the early 17th century. Newton did his monumental work towards the closing decades of the 17th century, well through the 17th century in the great universities of Europe. They were still teaching Aristotelian physics as if none of this had happened. They're still teaching Aristotelian physics as, as the truth. In other words, multiple interpretations are saturating the whole of science. From the very beginning, always multiple interpretations. Does this mean that science is just a bunch of stories and it's everybody's opinion versus everybody else's and they don't really know anything? No, that's a very superficial understanding of science. But it is also true that there are multiple interpretations and there always have been. And that does not repudiate science. So there's the answer to the first unasked, us unasked question. Here's another really juicy, unasked question. How did natural philosophy, because you might recall that Copernicus, Galileo, Newton, all the great pioneers of modern science, all regarded themselves, if you ask them in their own respective languages, what is your profession? They would all say the same thing. I'm a natural philosopher. I'm a natural philosopher. So how did natural philosophy develop into science? This is a two-part question. That's the first part. Natural, natural philosophy is a branch of philosophy. There's moral philosophy. There's philosophy of mind. There are multiple, philosophy, multiple disciplines, sub, subclasses of philosophy. This traces right back to Aristotle, multiple dimensions of philosophy, back to Socrates, back to Pythagoras for the matter. And so to answer that question, the category of natural philosophy had gone on from the 1200s, people were calling themselves natural philosophers or engaging in the discipline of natural philosophy. This is what I do from the 1200s 
so well, well long before the rise of modern science, from the 1200s up until the 1840s. People in this discipline, people like Newton and so forth, right through the 18th century, well into the 19th century, were not calling themselves scientists. The word didn't exist. They called themselves natural philosophers. When classical physics was really getting off the ground during the time of Isaac Newton and so forth, they called themselves natural philosophers. They also said they were engaging in mechanical experimental philosophy. The term science and people and scientist, these terms cropped up and began to come into common usage only in the 1840s. Science, of course, goes back to the Latin root, which simply means knowledge. So the scientists were rather in a rather self-congratulatory fashion, saying, we are people who know something. We are scientists. We, we practice science, and that's knowledge. Other people may love, love wisdom. They're philosophers, lovers of wisdom, but we actually know something. Because it was pretty obvious to them, as it's obvious to anybody who looks into the history of science, that it's not progressing in any kind of linear way. You can't really say that 17th century philosophy has advanced human knowledge in so many different ways more than 16th century, 12th century, and so forth. It's not to say that philosophy is a waste of time, but it's not progressing, it's not developing levels and levels, dimensions and dimensions of consensual knowledge. And by the 19th century, by the 1840s, it was really obvious to a lot of people that science was. There's very basic physics, like Galilean physics, there's Newtonian physics, and so on, and there's a progression here, and you won't understand more advanced physics unless you understand more basic physics. The same is true of mathematics. If you don't understand arithmetic, you won't understand mathematics. If you don't know algebra geometry, you won't know calculus. If you don't know basic calculus, you won't know multivariable calculus, and so on. So there, there's a succession, and this is knowledge, and it's consensual. Mathematics, physics, then it was getting to be, by the 1840s, geology, a great gut punch came to the literal interpretation of the Bible in the 1830s when geologists found that the planet is millions of years old. And until then, all of these natural philosophers, they were virtually all Christian. They all believed overall in quite a literal interpretation of the Old Testament, which means, which in indicated the earth was about 7,000 years old. 7,000 years old, millions and millions, that's a big boo-boo. That's, I mean, that's bigger than my mistake. That electrons have no spatial dimension. Well, no, they have a teeny, teeny, teeny bit. That's a little bit of mistake. But 7,000 years and millions of years, that's a big mistake. And so if the Bible get a big mistake about something God really have sh should have known about, I mean, he really should have known when he created, not have, when was that? You know, slapping his head. 7,000 years ago or millions of years? What, 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 what? You know, like he's senile or something. It looked like a big discrediting of the Bible that they didn't get it right at all. So, 1840s, the natural philosophers, are, they're recasting their own image. They're recasting their own identity, not as one more branch of philosopher when all of the other branches of philosophy don't really seem to be going anywhere in terms of a an increase of consensual knowledge and advancement of knowledge about the natural world. Philosophers are just debating and debating and debating, and the natural philosophers are actually gaining some consensual knowledge that's rocking the boat and overcoming, indisputably overcoming, earlier views, which you don't get just by thinking a lot and writing philosophical tracts. They're coming up with empirical evidence. And if you understand it, you can't refute it. The earth is just not 7,000 years old. 
And so they're starting to identify themselves. We're moving from natural philosophy to now something that is not philosophy. It's science. It's science. Let's backtrack a little bit. Something really quite interesting took place a bit earlier. And that is in the 1640s. So we're going just jumping back two centuries because we are, we'll come back to 1840s when scientists are starting to define themselves as scientists. And bear in mind this wonderful statement from Yangdan Rinpoche. All phenomena are empty of the labels we impute to them. All phenomena are empty of the concepts we impute upon them. No one is inherently a scientist. Science is a conceptual designation. In the 1640s, so this is just about 30 years after Galileo is coming with his groundbreaking observations and then the momentum is building with Galileo, with Kepler and moving into, into Isaac Newton territory. During this period in the 1640s, there was a group of natural philosophers in England who got together. They wanted to find, form a society. It was a small group of, they're all men. They're all Christian. And, they, but they, and they're from different institutions, but they felt, you know, okay, you're at Oxford, you're at Cambridge, you're here, you're there. But they had something in common, and that is they were natural philosophers. They were doing this experimental, mechanical philosophy. And they felt they should have their own society. And so they gave themselves a rather nice name. They, called, they formed a society. It was a loose-knit, loose-knit group of individuals. And they called it the Royal Society. Royal Society of London. And so it's very, how do you say, informal, beginning. But then it was officially... Sanctioned, it was officially designated as an official society. Perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps the first institutionalization of what we call science in 1660. 1660. So a new discipline, a new society, a new institution is forming here of natural philosophers in England. And in the, 19, in the 1660s came along a fellow, a natural philosopher, who wanted entrance into the society. He's a very little-known character, but he's quite interesting. In and of himself, I think he's not very significant at all, but he's like a representative of a zeitgeist, of a spirit of the times. His name is Thomas Spratt. Is this a cool story or what? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do. His name is Thomas Spratt. I bet unless you've really studied the history of physics, his name is not one of the big names. And he wanted, he wanted membership in the society. He wanted to be one of the guys. But he was nothing like a, a Robert Boyle, or Isaac Newton. He was uh, another guy. So the members of the society, they see this upstart wanting to join their society. And they gave him a task. By the way, I've, I've cited this in all the bibliographical information in a book I wrote, published 11 years ago called The Taboo of Subjectivity. And then you can see all the primary sources because I cite everything. The members of the society said, look, we have some problems here. We're natural philosophers. Bear in mind, they're all Christian. And they're very dedicated. I mean, enormously enthusiastic about their own discipline of experimental mechanical philosophy. Said, we've got ourselves a, a dilemma here. And if you can tackle this and give us a good solution, that'll be good enough. That'll be your entrance exam. And here's the problem we're facing. And that is we natural philosophers experimental philosophers, really seeking to understand the nature of reality by careful, meticulous observation and then rational analysis. Those are our two tools. 
So they're not simply relying upon scripture, authority, dogma, and all of that, or God, revelation, and so forth. This is our, this is our method. Well, what we're coming up with, what we're coming up with are regularities. We're coming up with the laws of nature, the laws that God imposed upon his creation. The laws of nature, the, the, the precise mathematical movements, the mathematical laws of nature, the movements as Kepler plotted of the elliptical circuits of the planets around the sun, the precise mathematical nature of the law of gravity. And one after another, we're finding these invariable laws, the laws of nature itself. And they're regular. They seem to be utterly consistent with no lapses, no inconsistencies. And so we're finding a very orderly universe here. It's majestic, it's mathematical, and it's law-like. It's absolutely law-like. And this is what we're finding from our empirical and rational analyses, mathematical analyses in particular, on the one hand. On the other hand, we are all children of God here. God created the whole universe. And we have from the Old Testament, so speaking from the Christian perspective, the Old Testament, the New Testament, it's just peppered with Miracles, Moses performing miracles, many other miracles in the Old Testament. Jesus turning, oh, turning just one, one miracle after another, resurrecting the dead and water into wine and multiplying loaves and walking on water. And then finally just resurrecting up into the sky, you know. We really can't account for that in the laws of physics. That really shouldn't be possible. And so we have this majestic creation of our divine Lord following absolutely strict laws. But then we have a lot of biblical evidence that God just breaks these rules whenever he wants to. Some prophet, some saint, Jesus himself, whatever. And that kind of really louses up our program. What do we say? These laws are absolutely regular except for when they're not. And so how do we account for God's divine intervention? Which then just throws out the window all of our regularities. A solid, dense mass like Jesus' body should just not be able to walk on the much less dense body of water. You know, it just shouldn't be possible. And so if you can make our Christian theology, which we embrace from our heart, and our mathematical science here, which we embrace wholeheartedly with our minds, if you can bring our hearts and minds together in a synthetic whole, we'd be very happy with that. So go for it. Give it your best shot. Get back to us. So, in 1667, bear in mind, this is a, he, he wrote, Thomas Spratt wrote, the history of the Royal Society of London. He wrote the history. It must have been pretty easy work because it was only seven years old. Right, It was incorporated in 1660. But he wrote his history of the Royal Society of London. And without giving away the whole plot, he solved the problem and he, he solved the problem to the satisfaction of his peers, his senior peers. And moreover, he got admitted into the Royal Society of London. And he handled it. Here's how he handled it. How do you handle God that intervenes whenever willy-nilly he feels like? Through his son, through his saints, saints, I think to become a saint, I think you have to perform two miracles. I'm pretty sure. Corroborated, very carefully investigated, two miracles. I think it's two. Three, more the better. One, quasi. But two, then you really get full-fledged sainthood. That's another kind of society. And so 
God is doing this. So here was his solution. And that is that now Christendom, the teachings of Christ, are so fully incorporated, so fully embraced, they are so stable, they're so fully, deeply, inextricably embedded in human civilization that the whole rationale for God performing miracles is now gone. Because why perform miracles? To convert the unconverted. To show them the power of God. Right? But if people already believe, then you don't need to keep on, yeah, another miracle, yeah, whatever. You know? You don't need to perform, keep on performing miracles if people already believe in your divine power. And so therefore, since Christianity is so well established, so incontrovertibly and irreversibly established, God doesn't perform miracles anymore. And that's why we don't see any, and that's why we don't need to worry about it. You know, if we see aberrations, if we see aberrations, we don't need to think, could it be the laws of nature or could it be God? We don't need to worry about that. Find a naturalistic explanation. Keep on pushing that one. Don't worry about the hypothesis, maybe God just broke the laws there because God doesn't need to break the laws anymore because Christianity is well established. I find that incredibly charming. Especially when you consider that Christianity had not spread east of Turkey or west of Ireland or south of North Africa was virtually unknown throughout Asia, except for here and there, and most of Africa, and all of North and South America. So it seems to me there were plenty of more miracles to be done. You know, to convert North and South America, and most of Africa, and almost all of Asia. But Thomas Pratt wasn't worried about that. He lived in London. And if you lived in London in the 17th century, you know it's the center of the universe. And whatever counts outside of London really doesn't matter much. And so that was a little thing that he figured that's just noise. He took this position saying this does not, there's a big, a big point he's about to make here. This does not refute the existence of non-physical or invisible phenomena. This does not refute that at all. All of this shows the invisible divine hand of the Lord so crafting the universe with such precision that all of this implies the invisible presence and the infinite intelligence of the Lord God, which is not physical. So this, in fact, our scientific inquiry here is reinforcing, empowering, bringing into cutting-edge 17th century the presence of God and God's divine intelligence manifesting in the natural world. So this is not at all atheistic. It's not at all materialistic. There are invisible beings. There is invisible of all kinds of things. And we natural philosophers, we're focusing on the visible, the tangible, the physical, the quantitative, and so forth. And then as for Christian beliefs, and here comes the big punchline. As for Christian beliefs, the divinity of Jesus, the Trinity, the existence of heaven and hell, of angels and so forth, these are simply matters of belief. You should be satisfied with them as belief. They are not knowledge. Don't even try for knowledge. Knowledge is not necessary, nor is it possible. So there is scientific knowledge based upon empirical evidence and rational, often quantitative analysis. And then there's the realm of the, of the spirit, the spiritual, the spiritual dimension, 
and that is purely a matter of belief, and that suffices. Bear in mind, virtually all of these are Protestants. They're Protestants. And salvation is to be won through faith and belief in God's word, not through knowledge of anything. So this was completely compatible. And moreover, there was virtually, the whole contemplative tradition had virtually died within the Protestant tradition from the time of Luther. There, was, there were vestiges, yeah, and there, a lot of nuancing there, but overall, the Protestants had no use for contemplation as an avenue of knowledge because who needs it? Moreover, bear in mind, 1660, that's still very much within the, the parameters of the witch-hunting era, which was very scary, terrifying, where people were killed for displaying any kind of special knowledge, like exosensory perception, precognition, look out, really look, duck. And moreover, this is the Protestant era in which one of the central themes of this view, coming back to Luther and others, is the human soul as a den of iniquity. We are fallen beings, we are core, we are evil, and it is only because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord that we have any chance for salvation at all. But our souls are really fundamentally tainted, contaminated, foul, disgusting. And it's only because of the utter perfection of Jesus and his death and resurrection and God's infinite compassion that he pulls us out of the swamp of our own iniquity and brings us to everlasting salvation. So believe this, have faith in it, and you are saved. And if you don't, you're screwed forever. But if you believe this, this is your worldview, then where on earth is there any incentive to start probing into a pit of evil, a den of iniquity, and the realm that can be, can be and is often possessed by the devil? So where is there any incentive to go inwards? And I would say powerful incentive not to, zero incentive to do. So this was very much Protestant science. Moreover, there's something here, if we do the zoom lens to panoramic vision, something really monumental took place here, and it wasn't for the first time. Here is Thomas Spratt, not a theologian, doing theology. Because he's making statements that are, are utterly theological. Religion is just about belief. Science is about knowledge. You've just made a massive categorical statement about the whole of religion, Christianity in particular. God doesn't perform miracles anymore. Boy, if that's not a theological statement. And on what authority is he making it? I'm a scientist. How do you know? Don't know squat. I have no knowledge at all, but what the hell? I'm a scientist. I'm going to make the statement and see whether people believe it. So just make it up with no empirical evidence whatsoever. And if people like the idea, they'll probably accept it. Why? Because they like it. So we see, move, look at that movement from Galileo, challenging this monolithic Roman Catholic Church that has sovereignty over the whole realm of the intellect, the nature of the human spirit, the physical world, heaven and hell, God, the Trinity. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church with this great scholastic fusion of Thomas Aquinas had it all. And here comes this upstart, this natural philosopher and mathematician, with a bit of training as a monk, as a youth, but pretty much he outgrew that, became a mathematician, and so on, challenging the whole Roman Catholic Church and saying, we want one-third of the pie. You can have the human soul. You can have subjective experience. You can have, of course, heaven, hell, and all the spiritual stuff, the transcendent, the divine. 
But we, we're taking over. So sorry, but we're taking over. We're taking over the objective, the physical, quantifiable. We're taking over the physical world. You're going to like it or lump it. But if we have empirical evidence that contradicts your whole apostolic tradition, the Bible, the whole apostolic tradition, and this monumental edifice of scholastic philosophy, combining Aristotle with the biblical tradition, if we have empirical evidence that refutes all of that, and I don't care how old it is, you're wrong and we're right. Well, he got you know, house arrest for that. But he was saying, we just want this part. And you theologians, you can still have the soul, the mind consciousness. You can still have God and all the divine stuff. We just want this, the mundane. Give us the smallest portion, the, the crummiest portion. You know, the lowest portion, you know, the physical. Just give us this. You can have all the really good stuff. And that was in 1600s. And then just a few decades later, it comes along Thomas Spratt and says, by the way, we're just taking over. We're just taking over theology now. We as scientists, we as natural philosophers, are going to tell you when God stopped doing miracles and why. And we're going to tell you what does and does not bring you salvation. You don't need knowledge. You just need belief. Now, that was in accordance with Protestant theology. But who's doing this? A Protestant theologian? No, a scientist. So suddenly it looks like they're taking over the whole pie. Took them only 40, 50 years before they're taking over the whole pie. That wasn't long. No wonder the New Roman Catholic Church was pissed off. Give them an inch, they take a mile. Give them some molecules and some suns and planets and stars, and they want the whole shebang. That's pretty greedy, especially when they have no evidence whatsoever for their conclusions. How does Thomas Spratt know what, what does and does not bring you to salvation? How does he know when, when or if God ever stops performing miracles? And so... It got rather uppity rather quickly. So we, got, we jumped to 18, 1840s, 1840s, so less than two centuries later, where the natural philosophers are striving to redefine themselves, re-impute themselves in a new fashion. Not natural philosophy, science. That means we know something, unlike those natural philosophers, those other philosophers. And we are scientists. We're not merely philosophers. We're certainly not theologians. We are scientists, so they're defining themselves in a different fashion. And it was right around then, in the 1840s, you get the first scientific tracts coming out. Where there's making some other bold claims based upon no empirical evidence whatsoever. Nothing compelling in, that, in any case. And that is the mind is just a function of the brain. The mind is nothing more than consciousness, perception, all of subjective experience is just a function of the body. This is in the 1840s. And I cite this in my book, Embracing Mind. Some of the earliest writings by scientists now taking over the realm of philosophy of mind. No compelling evidence. And there isn't even any science of mind at all. But they're already drawing the conclusions about what is the nature of consciousness and mind. And that is, and they are materialistic. In other words, they're explaining that which they really don't understand at all. And they're reducing it to something they do understand something about. And that is matter and organs in the body. And they're saying that which we don't understand is really not, take my word for it, is really nothing other than a function of or equivalent to something we don't understand, that we do understand. It's a power play. It's a power play. It's a massive turf takeover. So Thomas Spratt was just taking over theology and now we have people like Buchner and so forth taking over the mind. Science is getting very bold in the 1840s. 
and it's coming into its own. But the second part of that question was, how did natural philosophy, having developed into science, how did that lead to or even transform into the ersatz religion, the ersatz religion, the substitute religion, when religion is banished, what you put in its place, of scientific materialism, also called scientific naturalism. How did that occur? That occurred in the 1860s. In 1864 in particular, Thomas Huxley, Thomas H. Huxley, who is a tremendous admirer and advocate of Charles Darwin and his theory of evolution, a fine biologist of, in his own right. So here, once again, we have very good credentials as a scientist. And then leaping beyond all of the, the domain of empirical science and scientific fact, leaping beyond that into a realm where he doesn't know what he's talking about and making science now all-encompassing all-encompassing. And in 1864, he proposed the establishment of a new church. And he called it the Church Scientific. And what he meant exactly was the Church of Scientific Materialism, which is now unabashedly claiming all the turf. God, heaven and hell, angels, demons, don't exist, sheer superstition. They're invisible. That's, they're invisible because they don't exist. And how do we know they're invisible? Because we can't detect it with systems of scientific measurement. They're invisible. We can't detect them. They don't exist. In other words, he's starting a new church and it's fundamentalist from its first breath. It's fundamentalist in the same way that Christian fundamentalism, Jewish fundamentalism, Muslim fundamentalism, all forms of fundamentalism state we have the only way. We have the only way. And anything we can't matter doesn't count because it doesn't exist. And this is the church scientific. And the aim of this new church that he wants to found is, I quote, domination over the whole realm of the intellect. And so what are they doing with these three realms? The realm of the spiritual, the divine, the transcendent, the realm of subjective experience of emotions, perceptions, dreams, and so forth. And then the objective physical quantifiable. Now he's, he's claiming it's a power grab of the largest proportions. And he's saying, the church scientific, we're covering it all. And we're going to tell you how it is. And I'm speaking with all the authority of a scientist. Remember, we're the people who know something. Science. We know something. All of that spiritual stuff, it's crap. It's nothing. It's superstition. Don't even bother to look. It's not even worth looking into. Angels, spirits, Divinity, heaven, hell, all of it. It's a th theology is a logia of nothing. It has no reference. It's all make-believe. And then as for subjective experience, don't worry about it. It's a function of the brain. Any more questions? Let's just move right on. And this is how the game is played. It was only a decade or so after that that the science of the mind, psychology, started and by and large, after a little 30, 30 years of peppering with introspection, it got right in line. And the scientific study of the mind has been a branch of the church scientific. We'll study the mind by way of what is real, and that's behavior, which is physical, quantifiable, objective, and brain activity. Physical, quantifiable, and objective. Introspection has no place. Has no place whatsoever. So this is the establishment 
of natural, of scientific materialism as a religion. Just like Christianity started with the vision that it should be all-encompassing, convert all peoples to this one true faith. Islam has a similar agenda and so forth. It's following, it's such an Abrahamic kind of agenda. You know, this one true, the one true. And now we go for domination. Massive power grab. So one can ask in that same vein, when did scientific materialism become state religion? And that question wasn't asked either. But it can be answered. It became a state religion in 1922 with the establishment of the Soviet Union. And it was the state religion of that massive, terribly powerful and tyrannical, I'm sorry, but I think we all know that, tyrannical um, state. And it was scientific materialism. In fact, when I visited it, Moscow, while the Soviet Union was still up and running, I think it was in Moscow, it could have been Leningrad, I can't remember which, I think Moscow. There was a museum of, the museum of religion and atheism so they got that one right. They put it in the same museum. That atheism is simply one more religion. It's asking all the big questions of religion and coming up with all the big answers. Not, 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 not. No God, no heaven, no hell, no angels, no demons, nothing of the sort, no afterlife, and all of that. And so we see now, just as there was an utter union of church and state during the time of Galileo that threw him into prison. I mean, house arrest. It was pretty tame. But it's total fusion. The church had all the muscle of the state. And if they wanted to burn somebody, they'd burn them. They didn't need to go to higher authority. They were the higher authority. If they want to put Galileo to house arrest, they just do it. They don't need to ask somebody else's permission. Well, the Soviet Union, with this total fusion of church and state, of scientific materialism and the massive power of the military, the state, the secret police, and so forth, well, if you thought that religious persecution was pretty intense under the Inquisition. Oh, they could have learned so much from the Soviets. Hundreds of thousands of people massacred. Monasteries pillaged. In Mongolia alone, which then was under the domination of the Soviet Union, 30,000 monks during the time of Stalin. 30,000 monks. 30,000 monks butchered, shot, shot down like, like target practice. 30,000 monks and almost all the monasteries, almost all the monasteries just plundered, pillaged, demolished, that was just under the Soviet Union. Christian, Buddhist, and so forth. Some of the most intense religious persecution in the whole history of humanity has been done by the Church of Scientific Materialism, especially when it's fused with state. If you thought the Soviet Union had done something pretty powerful, then just, just step, look across the border to the southeast. Oh, man, 1949. That's when scientific materialism became the state religion of China. Hundreds of thousands of monks killed butchered, nuns, thousands of monasteries, plundered, books burnt. This wasn't for the sake of socialism. The monks were largely socialist anyway. This was ideological intolerance of the highest order, that we will burn you. We will burn you. We're going to make the Inquisition look like child's play because we've got much bigger weapons and much greater power. And so in terms of religious intolerance, and sheer massacring of not only Buddhists, of course, but the Christians, the Taoists, and so forth. And of course, not just Tibet, all of China. And then all you have to do is look at other communist regimes where, like North Korea and Cambodia during its Khmer Rouge area and so forth, you find in almost all of the communist countries throughout over the last century or so, there's this union of church and state 
and the brutality and the intolerance against the religion is staggering. So those atheists that said, oh, naughty, naughty religion, it's terrible, it's so intolerant. My goodness, it's like they had a lobotomy. Not recognizing that when their own belief system has become institutionalized and been fused with state, far more brutal than anything that Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus have dreamed up. And moreover, the way that they just pervert truth. I mean, the, I've, I've hardly seen any government, and governments are dishonest so many occasions, but the degree of dishonesty, of self-conscious dishonesty by com- communist regimes staggers the imagination. Staggers the imagination. So that's when it became, for the first time, a state church. Is there one more question? Do all branches of science share the same worldview? That's a very interesting question that wasn't asked. And the answer is, to some extent, yes. There is a consensual body of knowledge in biology, geology, chemistry, brain science, physics, cosmology, and so forth. Is there a lot they agree on? Absolutely, yes. It's marvelous. It's not just a bunch of opinions and people debating one opinion against another. Immense body of growing empirical knowledge. So you can see biology textbooks, whether they're written in China, in Argentina, in Germany, England, what have you, a lot of consensus. Likewise for astronomy, for geology, and so forth and so on. A great deal of consensus. And then as soon as you start fine-tuning it and looking into the details, what exactly, let's say, let's take the most successful branch of modern physics. It's quantum mechanics. The mathematics is impeccable. It's tested. It's, the technological output from it is fantastic. And so really, it's a very solid, brilliant branch of 20th century, 21st century physics. Exactly what does it mean? That is, how do these elementary particles exist prior to the act of measurement? What is the role of the observer? Uh, does the probability wave really f- uh, collapse when you make a measurement? Or are there multiple worlds that exist simultaneously? The Everett theory of multiple worlds. Um, what's really going on? And it turns out, when you go to a professional conference, and there have been multiple ones, and I cite one of the most recent ones that took place at Caltech just a few years ago. I cite it in my forthcoming book, Meditations of, Buddhist, of a Buddhist Skeptic, that when you got these cutting-edge physicists coming in to talk about quantum mechanics and other cutting-edge branches of physics, they agreed on almost nothing. When I got down to the fine-tuning, what does it really mean, quantum mechanics? What sense do we make of it? They agreed on almost nothing. So when you go to the professional level, there's always that multiple interpretations, even about pretty core issues. Many neurophysiologists saying, as one Columbia Columbia University neuroscientist said, the mind is the brain. Boom. Spoke with great prestige. Columbia University is an outstanding university. Christoph Koch from Caltech. The mind is not, why on earth should we believe the mind is the brain? Their qualities are so different. The mind is not the brain. They're correlated. That's what the empirical evidence suggests. They're correlated. We don't know how they're correlated. That's the empirical fact. The empirical fact, multiple interpretations about a day and night. The mind is the brain. The mind is not the brain. That's a pretty big difference of of interpretation. And it's all over the place. So is there consensus? Yes. And you fine-tune it. Tremendous field of interpretation. And it's ongoing. It's ongoing. Even about some of the most fundamental issues. 
even in the life of, and here's where we'll end, and I'll get to the question that was asked. It looks like that's going to be tomorrow. But I think you'll see, I hope you'll see how relevant this is to the questions that you can, might be able to surmise. Just take those questions and apply it to Buddhism. Because I made up those questions based upon the questions that were asked about Buddhism. Fundamental issues. What caused life? Multiple interpretations, no consensual knowledge. What caused the Big Bang? Multiple ideas, no consensus. What causes consciousness? Multiple ideas, no consensus whatsoever. What is the nature of the mind? Many ideas, no consensus. When does consciousness emerge in the womb of a human being during the development of fetus? Many ideas, no consensus. So there's this balance. But it's not, it would be easy to think, oh, but they're just, de- they're just debating the fluffy stuff, the, the fine-tuning, but the core issues they're all in agreement on. Wrong. It's not true. They're, fun- they're disagreeing about some of the most fundamental issues of the very nature of the natural world altogether. The role of the observer in the, in the physical world. Many people say insignificant. Others say absolutely core. That's about as fundamental as it gets. Is the universe going to continue expanding or is it going to contract? Multiple interpretations. Does this discredit science? Not at all. It certainly doesn't discredit the existence of my iPhone, and that came out of science. So there are tremendous practical benefits coming out of science for all of its differences of opinion and its multiple interpretations. And the multiple interpretations are intelligent, sometimes dogmatic, often not. But this is part of the scientific enterprise, to be at ease with Where there is consensus, there is consensus. Where there is diversity, be happy with the diversity. And if you want to jump in in and be a a party to the the discussion, that's what science is for. You can make that your profession. So why did I go off on that when this is a shamatha retreat and our days are very numbered now? It's because of the monumental significance of the practice of shamatha and vipassana for understanding the nature of the mind, the origins of the mind, the potentials of the mind, its significance for gaining freedom from suffering and finding genuine happiness. If what we're going to be doing here over the last seven, eight weeks is not a path of knowledge, if it's only a path of belief and faith, then the Buddha failed. And Buddhism is not what Buddhists have been saying it is for the last 2,500 years. But if it is what it has been claiming to be, the great adepts, the the scholars, the contemplatives, the the mahasiddhas, over the last 2,500 years, if they are correct in their own self-evaluation of what they are doing, as they regard themselves as Buddhists, as Buddhist pundits, Buddhist mahasiddhas, Buddhist bodhisattvas, Buddhist arhats, Buddhist aryas, their self-designations. All of these pertain to knowledge. All of these pertain to knowledge. The core of which is the cultivation of shamatha vipassana. That's the engine that drives the great knowledge machine of Buddha Dharma. If this is the case, then it's rising up exactly where the natural sciences are the most efficient and the most, frankly, superstitious presenting illusions of knowledge 
putting on the bluff, putting on the bluff. When the neuroscientist comes up to the podium and says, the mind is the brain, that's a bluff. They don't know that. They don't know that at all. But they just say it. It's an illusion of knowledge because they're speaking with all the credibility of this great university and I'm sure they have a great neuroscience department. They're speaking with all the, the authority of that, which in many respects they've earned, and then coming out with a statement that is sheer opinion with no empirical evidence behind it at all. Not for equivalence, yes for correlation, don't know the nature of the correlation. So exactly in that area where science is the most, pardon me, but superstitious and falsely presenting these illusions of knowledge, it's exactly there that Buddhism comes in this, this complementary fashion and said, we have what was your strength from the very beginning, from the time of the founding of the Royal Society of London back to Galileo. What did you apply to the universe that no one had applied before? This incredible sophistication of empirical observation and rational analysis. And you've done it incredibly well for the physical, the quantifiable, and the objective. And we have been doing it incredibly well as well for the nature of the mind, the nature of consciousness, the, the roots of suffering, the true causes of genuine happiness. This is where we shine and it's empirical and it's rational. And what you don't have, we have. Having said that, you have so many methodologies that we in Buddhism do not have. And this is why His Holiness Dalai Lama has stated so commonly and so publicly that where the natural sciences come up with empirical evidence that clearly refutes any assertion whatsoever about the nature of the physical universe, the mind, or anything else, comes up with conclusions based upon empirical evidence that refutes Buddhism, outgo the Buddhist assertions. We will reject them, we will abandon them as false, and we will accept what the scientists empirically demonstrate. And so a profoundly open-minded, self-reflectively critical, energetic, and confident stance. But he said, we will not accept your mere assertions based upon your beliefs that are all rooted in metaphysical assumptions that we don't accept. We're not going to accept that. I'm waiting for the scientist. So he's made this as a very prominent Buddhist. He's made this statement multiple times now in very public forums. I'm waiting for a scientist of anything remotely like his caliber on the scientific side of the fence saying, if you Buddhists can demonstrate by way of replicable, experiential evidence, any truth about anything, but most specifically what you claim to be good at, the nature of the mind, the nature of consciousness. If you can come up with replicable, rigorously acquired experiential evidence that re refutes any of our beliefs, assumptions, we will throw out our beliefs in the face of the empirical evidence that you demonstrate. And then if the Buddhists come back and say, yes, but in order to gain access to this empirical evidence, you might have to actually apply the methods yourself and not just read about them from somebody else. The scientist, an open-minded uh, open scientist might say, well, but of course that's what we've been saying all along. That is, Galileo didn't say, you know, just believe me, I've seen the phases of Venus. He said, if you make a similar telescope and you make observations, you will see it for yourself. That's relatively primitive. But now when scientists nowadays, based upon extremely sophisticated observations and mathematical analysis, claim we've now discovered 500 exoplanets that are going around other stars, 
Well, you can't just look through a telescope and see, oh, by cracky, you're right. To be able to corroborate that, to be, see that they are actually talking about something that is true and not just making it up, you just may have to spend eight years studying astronomy. Get your undergraduate degree, your doctorate, do some postdoctoral work, get a lot of time analyzing the data, making the observations. You may actually have to invest a big portion of your life full-time to becoming a professional astronomer such that you can see whether or not that's just a claim, an illusion of knowledge, or whether it is a hard-won fact based upon conclusive empirical evidence. But the same goes true for many of the claims made about mirror neurons. Mirror neurons, the neural correlates of empathy and so forth. True or false? Well, to really know whether they know what they're talking about, you probably will need to have some years and years of dedicated study and research. And then you can know for yourself. So when the Buddhists say, you know, we have made such and such discoveries, but you will not have made discoveries just by our telling, telling us or our claiming that we've been corroborating this, replicating this for centuries. If you'd like to know that we know what we're talking about, you're going to have to do the training. And it's not just theological training. It's not just textual training. You're going to have to, as Millerepa said, never let your meditation cushion get cold. You're going to have to put in the hard work. You demand it on your side with good reason. The lay people will not corroborate your claims about exoplanets, mirror neurons, and so forth and so on without years of rigorous, sophisticated, full-on, hardcore training. And that's fair enough because they're talking about high levels of knowledge here, not just looking to a telescope. And likewise, when Buddhists talk about substrate consciousness, rikpa, form realm, counterpart signs, and so forth and so on, that's not just sitting down for 20 minutes a day practicing mindfulness meditation. It's not a cheaply won truth. So there's a balance there. Tremendous complementarity. The scientific, is, scientific community and its technology has given us a wealth, a protection from hedonic distress for which we can be deeply grateful in medicine in so many different ways and given us a wealth of hedonic pleasures. I like my iPhone. I love my computer. I'm dependent on my computer. And so forth and so on. I'm gl so glad I didn't need to swim here. The Pacific is ocean. It's a big, big ocean. I wouldn't have done it. So I'm very glad for the airplane. Lie down. 14 hours later, oh, hi, Thailand. You know. So protection from hedonic distress, the opening up of hedonic well-being, fantastic. It's given us virtually nothing in terms of genuine happiness. Virtually nothing at all. Virtually not even a step in the, in the, in the direction of a more meaningful life because it wasn't designed to do that. And then it comes up and said, a meaningful life, that's just a subjective impression. I'm sorry, that's bullshit. That's just a, a vacuous belief that is not even worth listening to because they don't know what they're talking about. Buddhism really has not contributed a whole lot to the alleviation of hedonic distress. Not contributed a whole lot to hedonic well-being either. The great contributions to medicine, to agriculture, to medicine some, and not insignificant, but to agriculture, technology, and so forth, Buddhism really not much. So do we really want to be without one or the other? Do we want to sacrifice genuine happiness for the sake of just more and more and more hedonic pleasure? 
more and more consumption and exhaustion of all the natural resources, the external resources of the planet? Or do I have only genuine happiness but walk around, you know, with no technology at all, no scientific knowledge? Happily, we don't need to make a choice. So a time of really unprecedented in human history. And I'm emphasizing Buddhism because that's what I know about. I'm suggesting this is exclusive, that Buddhism has everything on the, on the contemplative side, the spiritual side. Never dream of it. It's foolishness. The Taoist tradition, the Hindu tradition, I'm waiting for a tremendous revitalization of the Christian tradition and other Abrahamic contemplative traditions, the Kabbalistic, the Sufi, and so forth. I would love to see a celebration of the revitalization of all of these to rise like a den of lions. We too have ways of knowing and we've shortchanged ourselves with our own fear, superstition, our power grabbing, our thirst for money and reputation. The churches have squelched their own contemplative traditions. They've disemboweled themselves. And Buddhism really isn't an exception. Not totally. We've disemboweled ourselves. Time to stop doing that, to get some guts back and recognize all these great spiritual traditions have a profound, profound contemplative core. Revitalize that and rise up to meet with science, not with two fists coming together, but two hands ready to join. Each needs the other. Each fulfills the other. So those are my answers to the unasked questions. And I'll respond more briefly to the asked questions tomorrow. And I'll see you then.